Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are very excited to have Natalie Meyer on our show today. She is a matrimonial and family law attorney with Shem Tob, Moss, Foreman, and Beta. In Manhattan is where she works and where we all live, <laughs> which is awesome. She has been named a super lawyer, a rising star, as we know she is, which is fabulous. Congratulations, an honor which is reserved for only 2.5% of attorneys in New York who demonstrate excellence in their practice area. Oh, my goodness. And we have her on our podcast. I know, a super lawyer. Can you believe it? <laughs> I love it. What an intro. I, I should like bring you guys with me everywhere I go and have you <laughs> just introduce me. That was so great. And I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh. Well, you are going to help our audience so much, set them up for success in their relationship and their marriage. So do you want to start with a disclaimer? I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't start with a disclaimer, right? Yeah. So just quickly, the information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listeners and I or the listeners and the firm of Shem Tab Moss, Foreman, and Beta, unless the listeners and Shem Tab Moss, Foreman, and Beta mutually agree in writing. The presentation is informational only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Great. Okay. So let's say if we're getting divorced and we have properties in different states, will you tell us how does that work? Of course. So New York courts have what's called personal jurisdiction over the parties that are going to be proceeding with a divorce. So the the requirements for that can be met in a number of ways. Domestic Relations Law Section 230 lays out a few of those options. So option one is Either the parties were married here in New York and one party lived here for a period of one year leading up to the divorce. The second option is the parties have resided in New York as a married couple at any point during their marriage and at least one party lived in New York for a continuous period of one year preceding filing for divorce. And that third option is either of the parties lived in New York for a continuous period of two years. So those are the three ways that the court can establish personal jurisdiction over the parties. And then once that divorce action is commenced, the court has jurisdiction over the marital estate. So even if there's a property that is in another state like California or Florida, as long as the New York court has jurisdiction over the parties, they'll be able to address those out-of-state properties as well. And what is jurisdiction? Jurisdiction is, hmm, how can I put this eloquently? It's really the court's, the right of the court to to preside over either a party or an action. So there's a scene in, in the beginning of Legally Blonde when Elle first goes to law school and the first topic she ever learns about that she's wildly unprepared for is subject matter jurisdiction. And the reason that, you know, lawyers learn that so early on in law school is because courts have to have jurisdiction over the parties or the subject matter or both in order for them to be able to handle the case. So, you know, in, in these examples with with a divorce in New York, Let's say parties, you know, didn't meet one of these requirements. They only lived in New York for, you know, let's say three months leading up to to the date that they file. And then they decide we're just going to walk into a New York court and we're going to file for divorce in New York because we like the laws here. 
the court's going to say, sorry, we can't handle your divorce case because we don't have jurisdiction. You don't meet that jurisdictional requirement. So it's really important because without that requirement, um, the train doesn't even leave the station, really. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was thank you. That was a fabulous explanation. What are grounds? So grounds are another uh, piece of that commencement of the divorce that you will need. They are basically the reason underlying your divorce action. So parties in New York need to to assert grounds in order to file for divorce. And there are a number of grounds that you can choose. Those include things like adultery, cruel and inhuman treatment, abandonment, imprisonment. Let's say you have your your spouse um, is incarcerated for a period of time. Those are all um, grounds. In 2010, a new grounds was established, and that is irreconcilable differences. And what that means is it's an eloquent way of saying the relationship has irretrievably broken down for a period of six months or more. And that is since 2010 and in its inception, that is by far the most common ground that we see parties filing under because it just gets right to the point. It's the easiest burden to show. And it just allows for parties to, you know, the relationship's not working out, breaking down for a period of six months or more. Let's let's just proceed with a divorce at that point. So that's definitely the most common ground that we see. And probably U.S. wide. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like every time I hear about a divorce, most mm-hmm. times I feel like it's that they just claim it as that. Mm-hmm. So I will say New York grounds are are specific to New York. Um, I'm sure that other states have similar, if not identical um, grounds. But, you know, certainly in the state of New York, those are that that is the most common. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us about New York as a timeline state. I don't think I know what that is. I explained that you'll hear New York divorce attorneys saying New York is not a title state. I say that New York is not a title state. New York is a timeline state. And what I mean by that is the timeline of when property is acquired will determine whether it is marital or separate. So the accumulation of marital property, I think of it as running like a stopwatch. As soon as you get married, that stopwatch clicks on and it starts and it starts running. And it doesn't stop until a divorce action is commenced or filed with the courts. So as long as that clock is running and property and income that you are acquiring while that clock is running, while you're married, before you file for divorce, unless specified in a prenuptial agreement or it falls under the definition of separate property, which we'll discuss in a little bit, that is going to be marital property because that stopwatch is running. So until you click stop by filing an action for divorce, the stopwatch is running. And that's why I think of New York as a as a timeline state. Okay, that makes sense. All right, now we're going to go to talk more about the law. Let's talk about things like equitable distribution. Yeah, so I've been throwing around the term equitable distribution in this podcast, and people are probably kind of wondering what that is. It's a it's a mouthful. 
Equitable distribution is New York's divorce law. It's the law that governs uh, every couple that gets married in the state of New York, and it's what we deal with when we're dealing with a divorce. So the formal law in the state of New York is called the domestic relations law. We call it the DRL for short. Um, And the idea is that in New York, things are not necessarily equal or let's say 50-50, but instead they're equitable, which means that they reflect each party's respective contributions to the marriage. So I think it's a Kanye West song where he says when she leaves, she'll leave with half. Um, that That's not necessarily true in the state of New York. So the courts try to take a more equitable approach. Wow. Oh, that's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do they, you know, measure that? Yeah. So the equitable distribution law, which is, Domestic Relations Law, Section 236, defines two categories of property. And the two categories are marital and separate. So the definition of marital property is all property acquired during the marriage, regardless of the form in which title is held. So you'll hear a lot of New York divorce attorneys like myself saying, New York is not a title state. And what we mean by that is just because your name is on something or an asset is titled in your name only doesn't necessarily mean that it's yours. So that that um, that second clause of that definition, regardless of the form in which title is held, is really an important distinction. And I think that that's something that a lot of people I mean, Nobody's sitting on the subway reading the DRL, you know, and memorizing the the definitions of marital property. But that's a really important qualifier that a lot of people don't know. So that brought to mind, for example, I feel like and this is might be completely different, but I feel like a lot of these husband and wife, let's say like Cher, for example, I think Sonny, like everything was in his name. And then is that what we're talking about here? Or is this more about like if somebody has a house and the house is under husband's name, it isn't necessarily just his? That's correct. So let's say, you know, let's say I'm married for purposes of this hypothetical. And let's say that I buy a beautiful house out in Montauk with my husband. I'm like dropping hints for my boyfriend right now. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say let's say during our marriage we buy a house and he titles it just in his name my name is not on the deed and then things go sour we get a divorce he's thinking well it's mine cuz my name's on it just like you know we all had our names on our lunch boxes when we went to school in elementary school well in New York state under the DRL just because your name is on it doesn't mean that it's yours and yours alone what happens if you get married here? What if you have a destination wedding versus getting married here? That's one question. And then two, what if it is in another state, if you own the property in another state? Well, I'll address the destination wedding first, which is are becoming very popular. I'm invited to two of them this summer, so it's definitely the trend. What will happen is you'll you'll get your marriage license here in the state of New York, and then you can have the ceremony performed in Europe or wherever your destination is, but you're still getting a New York marriage license. In terms of property that is acquired in another state, because tons of people who live in New York have 
beach houses or ski houses that are in other states. The way that you determine whether or not your divorce itself will take place in New York, that's a jurisdictional question, which the courts here have a requirement that you, um, it's, it's actually a residency requirement. So depending on how long you've been living in the state of New York, that would give the New York courts jurisdiction over your divorce. So you can you can proceed with a divorce in the state of New York, even if one of the properties that you're dealing with as a part of the divorce, let's say, is in Florida. You know, it's it's where the actual parties and their residencies are. Mm-hmm. Like you spend the majority of your time that the other one is a second home kind of thing. Right. And it's a timeline as well for the residency. So let's say you're living in California and you move to New York and you file for divorce the next day in New York. Well, you haven't been living here long enough to meet the residency requirement. So that would be a situation where you, unless your partner has been living here and they file and they meet, one of the parties has to meet the residency requirement in order for the divorce to be done here in the state of New York. Okay. Another interesting part about that same section of the DRL is that in New York, the assumption is strongly in favor of property being marital. So the burden is actually going to be on the party who is trying to show that a certain piece of property is separate. They're going to have to prove that. So if there's a property where it's kind of unclear, and when I say property, I, I don't just mean residential property. I mean any asset. So, you know, money, property, cars, any any form of wealth acquired during the marriage if it's murky as to whether it's marital or separate, the courts are going to strongly presume in favor of it being marital. So it's it's the burden on the party who's trying to show that it's their separate property to show that. And that's where, again, a prenuptial agreement can come in to really cut it dry, black and white at the start of the marriage and classify the piece of property as separate. And then, you know, that, that kind of takes care of that in most situations. So if your parents had a house somewhere and they left it to you and it was during the marriage, if you got divorced, he would be a half owner of that house unless you could prove or have a prenup that said, this is, this is my house. I'm really glad that you asked this specific question using this hypothetical. So let's say your parents are still alive. Um, We'll do two hypotheticals because they both illustrate this concept well. The first hypothetically, your parents are still alive. They make a gift of, let's say, you know, the the family beach house. They gift it to you during the marriage. Under the DRL, the gift is your separate property. However, you really want to make sure that it is clear that the intent is that the gift is being given to you and you only and not to you and your spouse. So let's say you know, with the with the gift of the beach house, you want mom and dad to write you a card that says, happy birthday, Allison, we are giving you the beach house mm-hmm. so that it can really clarify that, that that is a gift and that it's a gift to you and not a gift to you and your spouse. The second part of that hypothetical, let's say that you're the, the person who's gifting you the property has passed away and that you are inheriting that property as a part of a, a, a will or a device. 
that is also qualified as separate property. So gifts given in a last will and testament or by inheritance, those are a person's separate property. Okay. That's great. That's good that we brought that up and discussed that because that's important. So will you give us some examples of different scenarios? Yeah. So returning to to the concept of, you know, my mom, the school teacher and her pension. So a lot of people have pensions or retirement assets like a 401k or a Roth IRA. These are really, really common assets that we deal with a lot in our line of work. Okay. So a great example and something that I want to touch on because it's not expressly stated in the definition of the DRL, when people think property, they're thinking physical property like a house or a car. Mm -hmm. But what people don't think about and what is absolutely included in that definition of marital property is income. Money is property. We don't think about it that way sometimes, but it is. And so your income is property in terms of defining marital versus separate property. So As an example, let's say I have my bank account and I've been putting my paychecks and my bonuses, you know, since I got my job into that same account. Let's say it's account number one, two, three, four. So I put my every every week, my or however weekly I get paid, my direct deposit goes right into that account until I am married. So before I'm married, that bank account and that income is my separate property because money deposited into that account was earned and acquired before the marriage. Now, let's say I get married and I continue to put those same paychecks, those bonuses into that same account. I don't change my direct deposit. Income earned during the marriage is marital property. So now that I'm putting marital property into what was previously a separate property account, this is what we call commingling. You'll hear divorce attorneys use the term commingling. And depending on whether your intention was to protect that separate property account and keep it separate, that can be a problem because now in this hypothetical, I've just put marital money into a separate property account. And this has, in essence, changed the character of that separate property account. So remember earlier, I said that under New York law, the presumption weighs in favor of an asset, in this case, my bank account 1234, being marital. So now that my account is what we call commingled, meaning it has some separate property character, some marital property character, that account becomes murky. And in the event of a divorce, I'm going to have to show with you know, documentation how much of that account is marital and how much of that account is separate. So it, it, you can see very quickly how it can become murky. Right. Is there any way that someone can have a separate bank account that can you know, still be just their own money when they're married? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you, and this is the benefit of thinking about these things and having these conversations before that clock starts, before the, before the date of the marriage and before you walk down that aisle. Um, if you have an account that you really want to keep your separate property, there's a few ways you can do it. 
first and foremost, you can use that oh-so-valuable tool, the prenuptial agreement, and you could have a provision in that prenuptial agreement that says Natalie's account 1234 is to remain her separate property. Even if she's putting income earned during the marriage, that property is going to remain her separate property account. So that would um, that would be one way to do that. The other way is to not deposit a dime of income earned after the date of the marriage into that account. You keep it separate. Two weeks before you get married, you call your you know, your HR person and you say, change my direct deposit. I'm starting a new account. This is going to be my marital account with my partner. And then you start putting that income earned during the marriage into that marital account. Your separate property account stays the way it is. And you kind of start a new timeline on that second account and you keep the accounts separate. That's interesting. So even if one person is making a lot less than the other person, if you do get divorced, it would be divided down the middle or equitably. Right. So not necessarily 50-50. Again, in New York, equitable. So 50-50 can certainly happen, um, but the courts will look at um, each party's contributions to to those accounts and those assets. Right. So the person most likely that, that made more and put more money in even if the other person was working just as hard, but maybe, you know, at home or something, the other person that put more money in is probably going to get more money. So that's a great question. Not necessarily true. Thankfully, the courts do recognize parties' contributions other than just monetary contributions. So let's say in a hypothetical, you have a husband who is the primary wage earner. He has a great job and the Wife has a great job as well, but she decides she's going to stay home and raise the children. The courts, they acknowledge that raising kids is is a job and it's it it also allows whether it's the the wife who's staying home, the the husband who's staying home, the party who's staying home is doing a service and allowing the family, the other party to go out and to earn you know, that wage. Otherwise, if you have both parties working, you would be paying for childcare. So the courts do acknowledge that contributions to the marriage can come in the form of staying home with the children and allowing that other person to go out and be the primary wage earner. And they will take that into account. Okay, great. That makes much more sense. Yeah. And what about a scenario with a physical property like an apartment? So with physical property, we'll use another example. Let's say that I've been saving up to buy an investment property, like a beach house or a ski house, and I get married and decide that, you know, the time is right to to buy that house that I've been saving up for. I buy a nice beach house out in the Hamptons. We're we're sensing a theme here. I clearly like like the Hamptons. So I've been saving up. I buy a nice, uh, let's change it. I buy a nice ski house out in Aspen. And I use the money from one of my bank accounts for the down payment. And then I take out a mortgage, which is, you know, really common. That's what a lot of couples are are doing nowadays. The house is titled in my name only. So I buy it. The deed just says my name. It doesn't have my partner's name on it. 
Remember earlier, we discussed that New York is not a title state. So that house that I just described would be considered marital property and my partner would be entitled to an interest in the proceeds of that house if we were to sell it. Why? Because I bought it during the marriage, including taking out a mortgage during the marriage. Marital property is property acquired during the marriage. We went over that definition earlier. Similarly, liabilities incurred during the marriage are marital liabilities. So now, fast forward in a divorce scenario, I could possibly provide the court with receipts showing that I made the down payment on that house with money from an entirely separate property account. But that's going to be my burden to show because the house was acquired during the marriage. That golden clause, regardless of the form in which title is held, the house was acquired during the marriage. So the presumption will be that it is marital property and it will be my job as the party trying to prove that it's separate to meet that burden and to show that that property is separate. Okay. That makes sense. I love the idea about the, your friend Lauren and the big bottle of water. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is a great analogy. And I, Lauren Blau, my lovely coworker who came and spoke with me at the junior league. And I, I steal this analogy from her. Admittedly, she uses a really, really great analogy. And that is, you know, you think about your, separate property as a big bottle of clear water. You got a big bottle of water. It's your separate property. Then I have a little dropper of red food coloring. The red food coloring is marital property. You guys probably know where I'm going with this. (laughs) If I put one drop of that red food coloring into the bottle of water, the whole water bottle turns pink. You know, it's, it's murky. That That red can no longer be separated from the clear water that was in the bottle beforehand. This is what putting marital property into separate property looks like. It muddies the waters. It turns that clear water bottle murky pink. And it becomes a lot more difficult to separate out water from red food coloring or marital property from separate property in a situation where you have mingled the two of them together. Oh my goodness. Okay, Natalie, what about a situation in, I don't know what it is like today, but I know this is in general in the South or maybe older generations where women weren't really involved in the finances. So if a marriage is dissolving, what if there's a lot of debt or things like that that the other partner wasn't aware of? Ignorance is not an excuse for those types of situations, I I certainly see that happen all the time where let's say one partner is maintaining what they think is this marital lifestyle and the bottom falls out and you find out that really you've been living on credit and and you've acquired quite you've you've racked up quite some debt. The other party saying I had no idea that this was happening, you know, he, he does the books or she does the books. I don't know. I That's not going to be an excuse to to a court of law. You know, a partnership is a partnership. There's a reason that the vows typically say for better or for worse. <laughs> um, you are in that partnership together. So 
liabilities that you that one party acquires during the marriage, that's a marital debt. And so to anyone who thinks that they're going to just maybe be in the dark, definitely, definitely have those conversations with your partner. And listen, this is a person that you are trying to build a life with, build a partnership with. If you can't have those conversations or for some reason you're feeling a little uneasy about asking them about, you know, these financial topics, Mm -hmm. that should be a little bit of a sign to you because you should be able to have these really, really important conversations and go into a marriage feeling like you have full financial disclosure from your partner. You're both on the same page. You have a plan to go into this partnership with success together and no one's going to be no one's going to be in the dark. Right. I think that's such great advice. And I think, you know, obviously it would be more of a real partnership, but even for the person who maybe is trying to hide, you know, the debt, the credit or, you know, whatever the issues, the stress that they carry from that too has to negatively affect the marriage. So I think, especially with your age group, your generation and younger, I think that it is less of a a taboo to talk about money as a woman, period. Totally. So I wanted to share a provision from a prenuptial agreement that I was actually working on this morning before I came to record this podcast. And I just think it really eloquently puts forth the idea behind the prenup, the party's intentions. And I use this provision frequently in prenuptial agreements. So I wanted to share it with our listeners. The provision goes like this. The purpose of this agreement is to promote and encourage the marriage of the parties rather than to facilitate its termination. And I just think that that really addresses kind of the elephant in the room of prenups have this negative stigma that if you enter into a prenup, it's because you are anticipating a divorce. And that is not what a prenuptial agreement is at all. It is it is really a way to promote and provide you know security for the parties that are entering into this marriage, really a, a document and a wealth of knowledge because it lays out everything and it's black and white and it's clear to both parties and so you know one of my favorite moments in in what I do in my practice is when the parties are done negotiating the prenup we have signing day and they sign and it's done and you know the wedding is coming up imminently and once the document is signed it's like you know go forth and walk down that aisle and know with confidence that you are approaching your marriage with terms and provisions that you've both agreed on as a couple. And and what a strong beginning, what a strong foundation to have to enter into a marriage with. It's knowledge and it's confidence and agreement before you even walk down the aisle and say, I do. And so I think that it's great. So I just wanted to share that provision. <laughs> It does have that stigma, and it it's good to address it and to explain it in a different way. 
Yeah. So I think of prenups as a way for my clients and their spouse to really design their own landscape for their marriage. You're basically saying when you execute a prenup or negotiate a prenup, we know what the law is and we're choosing to design our own law. And we are not going to be you know, bound by just the generic boilerplate that's out there. We're going to kind of get a little bit more specific than that. And we're going to design it around our specific life and our specific facts you can get creative with the prenup to that point. You know, you can address any property you want in any way you want. You can address some things and not others. You know, you could have a prenuptial agreement that's only a few pages long. Maybe there's just one piece of property that's really important to you and you want to address that. And then everything else, maybe you're not as worried about or vice versa. You want to address, you know, all of your accounts, all of your property, anything that could possibly happen. Um, you can really cater the document to work for your specific facts. So um, I think that that's a really, really awesome opportunity to take advantage of um, and utilize. If you're already married and your financial situation changes, you can execute what's called a postnuptial agreement. So that just means that it's an agreement that's signed after the marriage. And the postnuptial agreement can reflect whatever the new financial reality may be. Maybe you acquired a new piece of property, you started a business. Life is a journey and things come up and things change. So even if you didn't have a prenuptial agreement and you now are in a different financial position or you've acquired property that you want to be clear about, um, you can always execute a postnuptial agreement. That's an option as well. So there's lots of options to kind of design your own roadmap for how your marriage would go and what what your finances would look like in the situation of a divorce. And I just think having complete control is really, really something special. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of a post now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we do them. We do them frequently, actually. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then is it the prenup stands or is it revised or is it a completely separate document? It depends on the party situation. It could be that the postnup adds to the prenup and all of the provisions in the prenup will remain, but we're kind of supplementing them. Or there could be a postnuptial agreement that says, you know, there's a term of the prenup that no longer works for us. And so we're going to change that. We're going to amend that. So it's really unique to the parties. Mm, that's nice to know, because I feel like it could be seem terrifying to be. I don't like to sign anything legal documents. So it's nice to know that whatever you sign can be changed later if necessary. Yes. Yes and no. I will say, Delia, I used this example when I gave the presentation at Junior League because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where a client comes in, they're getting a divorce, they signed a prenup, you know, X amount of years ago before the marriage. And it's a really, really not great document for them. And they just say, you know, because I'll, I'll say to my clients, what were you thinking signing this? What were you thinking? And they'll say, oh, I didn't know. I didn't read it. I wasn't sure. You know, everything happened so quickly. Um, I just wanted to get it over with. Whatever the reason may be, I will say prenuptial agreements in the state of New York are very difficult to get 
thrown out, meaning invalidated or overturned. So once you sign that document, before you sign that document, it's really important to know what you're signing, feel comfortable with what you're signing, because once you sign it, it is it is binding and it's very, very difficult in the state of New York to get a prenuptial agreement thrown out. So when in doubt, do not sign, call up me or another matrimonial attorney and I'll be happy to walk you through it. And, you know, just like any other document, hopefully in life that you that you sign, you got to read the fine print and be comfortable with what you're signing. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's super important. <laughs> I mean, you're right to, to be uncomfortable signing things until you really know what you're doing because of that reason. I am like that neurotic girl, and I, I know it's because I'm a lawyer, but I really do believe I would be like this anyway, even if I was in a different profession. Like when I was signing my lease for my apartment, it was a 60-something page document. I read every word of that lease. Oh, yeah. Did, I don't know a thing that it means. Did, I don't know the what same way. the single word means, but I would still read it. Totally. <laughs> exactly. You do, you do, which is smart. I mean, you know. <laughs> I, I can learn that from you girls because that's not me. Okay, what happens to the engagement ring? First of all, if the person doesn't end up getting married or if they get a divorce? This is a great question. Um, and I'm and I'm glad you asked because I get this question a lot because it's an important rock. So what happens to it is is really important. Under New York law, engagement rings are a gift in contemplation of marriage. So... The condition of the marriage actually happening is very important. If you get engaged and you're gifted an engagement ring, that engagement ring is a gift to you conditioned upon you marrying the person who gave you the ring, which is your to-be partner. If you do not get married, you have to give that ring back. I mean, you know, maybe your partner will, your your no longer future spouse will say, you know, whatever, just keep it. But if that person asks for it back and says, hey, no deal, I want the ring back, you do have to give that ring back because the condition of that gift never occurred. So once you get married, the condition has been met and the ring is your separate property because it was gifted to you before the marriage. So in the event of a divorce, the ring would be yours to keep. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then what about, we're going to talk about pets, but in terms of children, do people include future children and prenups? You can provide for certain provisions relating to children in a prenuptial agreement, but very slim. The courts really like to retain their right to make decisions about children. The standard in New York is the best interests of the child. And the courts really are the ones who want to retain the right to to make that determination as to what is into the best interests of a child. So you cannot stipulate in a prenuptial agreement to child custody. You cannot stipulate in a prenuptial agreement to child support because those decisions are decisions that the courts say, nope, we're going to step in here. You know, kids are too important. You know, you can sign away some of your rights, but you can't sign away rights for 
for your children. We are going to retain the right to make sure that the decisions that get made surrounding children are always reflecting what's in the best interest of the child. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what about pets? What happens to pets in a divorce? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this because it is a, a hot topic these days. Lots of couples will will get pets during their marriage and pets are property. I mean, they are acquired during the marriage, but they don't really bode well for equitable or any other kind of division. I mean, we can't we certainly can't cut our precious dogs and cats in half. So what we'll see if the parties can't agree on who gets to keep the pet, they can have a shared custody arrangement just like you would with a child. I've seen this a number of times where, you know, both parties have grown attached to the animal and they both want to still be able to see the animal. So they'll have a custody arrangement and Buddy the dog will spend Monday through Friday with his mom and then he'll go to his dad's house on the weekends. Um, So it, it absolutely happens. But... This law is ever changing that that pets are seen as property. Just actually a few weeks ago, a decision came out of Dutchess County. There are a few different county courts in New York who have begun to address this topic, but it has not been codified into any sort of statute or law. It's just common law at this point. But courts are beginning to say that In a custody dispute over an animal, the courts should consider the best interests of the animal. So a few minutes ago when I was talking about best interests of the child, that has kind of inspired the courts to look at animals the same way. So we saw a recent case out of Dutchess County that was the court addressing a custody arrangement over a Doberman Pinscher, I think, was the breed. And the court said... We have to consider the best interests of the dog in making this determination on who the dog should be with, what the custody schedule should look like. It's ever changing, but we're starting to see even the best interests of the animal to be considered, which is really interesting. It is. And also, pets are expensive. So, very expensive. Like divided down the middle, too, when they both have custody. I mean, that is something that the parties can certainly stipulate to, you know, how are we going to address expenses of the pet? It's also something that the courts can consider and and they did consider it in this recent case out of Dutchess County, you know, who is able to consistently provide for the pet, you know, veterinary bills, availability to take the pet to appointments. Those are all things that just like we would with, or I should say similarly to how we would think about them with a child, we think about them in the case of an animal as well. So yeah, it's, it's cleanest and easiest if parties come up with an agreement, um, you know, here's the custody schedule, here's how we're going to split veterinary bills. Mm -hmm. That also requires the parties being able to get along and respect those schedules. So it's not always feasible, unfortunately. Oh, gosh. Very interesting. Yes. Okay. So what research should someone do before finding a matrimonial lawyer or before signing a prenup so that they make sure that 
both parties hopefully are entering into the marriage in a respectful way and we want to make sure everyone is that's a good question um because i've never been on that side of this process (laughs) this is a really personal process and this is why i chose this area of law you know we're not dealing with mergers and acquisitions or contracts or you know personal injury um this is a really, really intimate and personal time in a person's life, whether they're coming for a prenuptial agreement or they're coming for a divorce or anything in between. So I think finding someone who you feel like gets you, you know, because the conversations that I have with my clients, they they are transparent and, um, you know, you want to be you want to be comfortable with the person that you that who is representing you. So that process can involve consulting with a few attorneys and making a decision as to, you know, who you get the best feel for. You can also look up different distinctions that attorneys have received. You can research their experience. You know, have they done a lot of trials? How easily and how frequently do they settle? Or are, are they one of these bulldog attorneys who never settles a single case. You know, it's really what you're looking for and you need to choose what's right for you and an attorney who you feel like gets you and can advocate for you your way. Yeah. Right. You always see like on TV and things like that. It's like the husband to be has his whole team of lawyers and the the bride to be comes into a big a conference room and they're wanting her to sign all these papers before the marriage. And it's, that's what everyone, you know, worries about as a, as a woman, especially, I feel like that'd be just because that's in your head. So definitely, definitely. And, you know, this goes for any situation in life, but definitely, you know, that, that quintessential scene that you just described of the husband's all lawyered up and the, you know, wife just comes in and she's by herself and she's not sure what she's signing. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. You know, like your trust women have a gut and our gut instincts are really strong. And so if at any point in that process you feel uncomfortable or you just wish, gee, I really wish I could, you know, run these terms by someone, have somebody read this agreement before I sign it, definitely act on that gut instinct because, you know, marriage is a huge decision. All of these ancillary issues that we're talking about that relate to marriage, these are really big decisions. And like I said, you should be able to walk down that aisle feeling like the only thing you're focused on on your wedding day is like the cake and the photographer and your dress. You should not be, you know, feeling like you have this pit in your stomach or this thought in the back of your mind that there are issues that you feel like you don't have the full knowledge or um, competence on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Failing for sure. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. And what about research in terms of terms of, or whatever the correct verbiage would be? My advice on that is, There's a lot on the internet. And as we all know, I'm sure I don't have to tell our intelligent readers this, not everything that you read on the internet is true. (laughs) Um, 
So when it comes to the law, you know, there is a reason that lawyers have to go through three years of law school and sit an unbearable bar exam and go through a bunch of licensing um, requirements. And that's because, you know, the law cannot be learned in a day and it cannot be learned with a Google search, certainly not competently and confidently. So, you know, for anyone out there who wants to do their own research, you certainly can. But I just feel like I, I've even done, you know, Google searches where I'm just quickly trying to look something up and I find a piece of law and I think to myself, this is totally wrong. <laughs> this is not right. Um, and this is out there and somebody's going to read this and they're going to make a decision relying upon this, you know, Wikipedia page and you get what you pay for and consulting with an attorney is going to lead to a more comfortable and competent experience. And I think it's worth your dollar and it's worth your peace. Exactly. And, and don't be afraid to ask your lawyer, just like you did a little while ago, Delia, what is jurisdiction? What is this? What is this? You know, definitely, definitely. I feel like women are in the era of we're raising our hand in class. Like we are, we are speaking up. We're asking the questions. If something doesn't make sense, we're we're asking about it and we're getting a clarification before we put pen to paper. And I had a client a few weeks ago who, you know, she wanted me to walk her through every single provision of her prenuptial agreement. And, you know, she was like apologizing to me. And I said, do not apologize. This is what this process should look like. This is what I want every one of my clients to be doing. And you are doing the right thing. And I will sit here. I will walk through every word of this agreement with you and make sure that you know what you're signing. You don't have any questions. And then once it's signed, you know, you can move on to the fun and the festivities. So that is definitely something that women should be doing for sure. Right. That's good. So you can kind of just lean on the lawyer because I just I didn't know if you needed to come in prepared with like, okay, we definitely want to have all of this included, but more maybe it's just y'all sit down at the table and then you as the lawyer work through and come Mm -hmm. up with all the different options. And then, oh, yes, we do have a house or, oh, we do have a dog or, oh, this is my job. This is my job type of thing. Of course, I take clients as they come to me, you know, so there could be a client who comes in and they have a hundred page list of everything that they want in their prenup and that's fine. Or I could have a client who comes in and says, I just heard about prenups yesterday. I don't know what they are. I don't know if I need one, but I want you to explain it to me and maybe I'll decide I want one. And everyone in between those two people, you know, we can work with whatever stage you're at. And, you know, your attorneys will know the questions to ask to figure out what your situation is and what whether a prenup is right for you and what should be included in the prenup. So the consultation process in itself is actually really helpful because your attorneys will dig dig up those areas and kind of figure out what's right for you. So I would definitely advise that. And I think it's just like um, with a doctor or anything. If you go in and you meet with a lawyer and they, they, are, they are not patient with you and they do not behave the way you behaved with your client, then that's uh, it's time for a second opinion. You know, maybe there's another lawyer that's going to be a better fit for you. 
Definitely. Definitely. Back to that gut reaction, you know, and, and doctors have bedside manner and lawyers have, I guess, maybe table side manner. I'm not sure what they would call it, but um, yeah, uh, you need to find someone who you feel like gets you and guides you through the process in a comfortable way because life is too complex to then also be feeling like you're not jiving with your attorney because we're here to be your advocate. So if you're not feeling good about that, something's probably wrong and it's time to make a change. And that happens all the time. Yeah. Mm. And then is there a scenario that makes sense versus doesn't make sense for a prenup? It really, really depends on the client and it depends on their facts. So everyone's situations are different. You might have a client who comes in and we figure out, you know what? The law is basically what you want. So, you know, this is going to turn out just the same way. If you didn't have a prenup, then you did. I mean, that's pretty, pretty rare. I don't think I've ever actually had that happen. But (laughs) in that case, you know, it would be that maybe there's not a need for it. But every situation is unique. And that's why not that's another reason not to do internet research because your facts are different. So the application of your facts to the law is going to be different and your your result is going to be different. So get an approach that is catered to you, designed around your situation. And that's really what the consultation process and what working with an attorney is for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if one party is making less, should they try to avoid signing a prenup? Not necessarily. It really depends on what the provisions of the prenup say and each party's situation. So it's really not necessarily, I think there's this there's this assumption or the stigma around prenups that it's always between two people who, you know, one party is a far more moneyed spouse and the other person doesn't really have much. And so the reason they're entering into a prenup is because the more moneyed spouse wants to keep all the money to themselves. That's really, uh, that's really few and far between. Like that is not necessarily why many clients get a prenup. In fact, some clients, maybe both of them, you know, have a lot of wealth or entities that they're trying to protect. Maybe neither of them do. It really depends. So every situation is different. That's interesting. Are there any do's and don'ts of prenups? Of prenups? Hmm. Uh, Yes. The don't is don't sign it if you haven't read it or you don't know what it means. (laughs) That is definitely a don't. Yes. Um, And do, I mean, I'm biased, but I have to say, do explore the idea of a prenuptial agreement. Don't write off a prenuptial agreement because you think, oh, well, I don't need that. Or there's that means if we sign a prenup, that means that we're already thinking about divorce. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Don't write it off. You know, do your research. If you're curious, consult with an attorney. And maybe you will ultimately decide you don't need one, but don't write don't write one off because they're a really, really powerful tool. And I wish that more people would see them that way. Okay, so we've set we're setting our audience up for success pre-marriage. But there are a lot of people that are in marriages 
that probably maybe should never have gotten married or should the marriage should definitely be ending. We had a whole big thing, Natalie, you might have seen in the media. What were they calling it? The gray divorce or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like a bunch of people in their, I don't know what, 50s and things. Anyway, so women. Yeah. Yes. A lot of women are decide. you know, they were deciding to end the marriage. So divorce. Many, many women stay in a marriage because they feel Maybe they don't have financial security. Maybe they're stay-at-home moms. They feel like they can't get out of it, but they would probably like to. So how can we empower women to get out of a marriage that they don't need to be in, regardless of their financial situation? This is so funny that you bring this up because I was just having this conversation with a friend over brunch this past weekend, and we were talking about how there's such a difference in the generation. You know, the divorce rate has gone up And there's this stigma that, oh, you know, people don't stick it out and and stay like they used to. Well, think about the financial landscape that has changed since, let's say, you know, I think of my grandmothers who were both married to their husbands for 50 plus years. In those times, women's property was not her own. We go far back enough that a woman couldn't even own her own property. It had to be in the name of her husband. Women couldn't own their own credit cards. There was really no way for women to build wealth for themselves. So they didn't leave because they couldn't leave. Right. Um, and so this shift that we're seeing with you know marriages, the divorce rate going up and marriages ending, whether that be between a woman and a man, between a same-sex couple... Etc. That is a reflection, in my opinion, of the fact that the financial landscape has changed and women are able to build wealth for themselves and survive on that wealth in the event that they do decide to to leave their relationship. So to your question about these gray divorces that we are seeing or you know, women who have been and anyone who has been in a marriage for a long time and it's no longer serving them. I call divorce the D word because it's like this big, spooky, ominous word. Like when I tell people that I'm a divorce attorney, they look at me like I'm an executioner. Like it, it is like this big, bad word and people don't want to say it. They don't want to do it. Um And I think that that's because the process can be negative. And of course, that's true. There are aspects of a divorce that are sad, um, negative. Our relationship is coming to an end. But this can also be a process that is positive. It can be a process that is rejuvenating and, you know, begins the next chapter When one door closes, another one opens. As cliche as that is, you know, closing a chapter, you never know what is on the other side. My mom, who will hopefully listen to this podcast, (laughs) she experienced her own divorce from my father. And there's something that my mom says to me all the time. And I now have it actually on my bulletin board in my office. And I share it with my clients occasionally when we are having this sort of a discussion and it's everything you want is on the other side of fear. And I think that that's really profound. You know, we 
sometimes stay where we are because we're comfortable and it's easy and it's familiar. And I think that that's why a lot of women stay in marriages that may not be serving them anymore. You know, you stay for your children. You stay for the idea of what your marriage used to be. You stay because what would you do if you left? What would that look like? You know, it's this big unknown. But, you know, women are courageous and they're brave. And just taking that first step out into the unknown and consulting with an attorney or even just consulting with your your circle of friends, your support system, whoever it may be, and saying to yourself, this is something that I'm thinking about. And I'm going to say that D word out loud and I'm going to think about this and whether it's the right decision for me and step out into that unknown because who knows what could be on the other side of that. It could really be, and it most often is, a better quality of life. You know, you're no longer in a relationship that's not serving you and finding an attorney that can help advocate through the nitty gritty of that time and get you there so that your divorce doesn't have to be this big, bad, ominous D word. I have a lot of clients who on the other side of their divorce, they say, I'm so glad I did this. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I do what I do. It's scary and it can be negative, but it can also be the beginning of something really great. No, that's awesome. Mom, do you have any words of wisdom for anyone contemplating no, I think, making a change? I think that's exactly what you say. It's it's um if you stay, you know the way it's gonna be. And if you go, it's very, very scary and sad, but life could be very different on the other side. There's something unique about marriage. We treat it differently. And in many ways, we should. And I, I respect that. But but thinking about, you know, how we treat friendships, how we treat our jobs, how we treat uh, activities we're involved in. You know, if you have a friend who's not being a good friend and you decide this friendship's just not serving me anymore, you leave that friendship. If you have a job that you, you know, it's this is just not the place for me. This is really not you know, serving my mental health, I'm not growing here, you leave the job. So why is it that we think differently about marriage? I know why, because marriage is a sanctity and a special, special partnership and bond. But it's another piece of life that if it's not serving you, you have to think about whether or not you should stay. Oh, my goodness, Natalie. Well, this has just been so informative. Thank Mm -hmm. you for all of this incredible information. Where can people find you and hire you as their matrimonial attorney? (laughs) You can find me at cmfb.com. That stands for the lovely law firm of Shemtab Moss, Foreman and Beta. And in the show notes, we will link Natalie's contact information so you can get in touch with her. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And everyone, we can't wait to see you for the next episode. We hope you found this super helpful. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you 
are sharing this content that I believe to be important. And it's not just because it's what I do every day. I promise I'm not biased. I love talking (laughs) about this stuff because I think it's important. And that's what I'm here for. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Finds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.